Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in the forests outside Missoula, Montana. Deep snow to get to where we're sitting right now in a forest of ponderosa pine, dug fir, and larch. We're sitting between two relatively high-traffic game trails, and I'm sitting with Joshua Lisbon. Joshua is a tracker, tanner, and teacher. He is the director of education at MPG Ranch and the co-founder of the Montana Folk School. Joshua is a lifelong student of the outdoors. Well, Joshua, I just want to first say thank you so much for trudging up the mountainside with me to join me on the Trail Less Travel today. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Joshua, my first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure part of your childhood? In particular, I'd love to learn about the evolution of you as an outdoors person and student of primitive skills. I grew up in the countryside of Pennsylvania, so pretty far east Pennsylvania, the eastern woodlands there. And I'm eternally grateful to my parents for choosing a place that was surrounded by natural habitat of fields and woods and undeveloped spaces that I could run around in and grow up in. And that meant the world to me as a kid because... I was able to discover myself and learn about the natural world as I grew up in these wild natural places. And granted, of course, these are places that were like second or third generation growth. They'd all been logged, they'd all been tilled, all the things. But for me as a kid, this was the primeval forest. And so I had the opportunity to discover tracking, discover the habits of the animals in the forests that I called home. I got to learn about the trees, learn about the plants, and come to discover myself in that place. And so it was vital for me to have that as a young one, especially because I did well in school, but I didn't thrive in that environment. I didn't like being indoors, and I really felt school to be kind of an overwhelming environment and not really where I felt at peace and at home. So I would always, you know, as a little guy, I'd get off the bus, do whatever I needed to do, and get myself out to the forests. And there was a tree in particular, a, a large beech tree, which for those of you out in Montana, maybe you're not familiar with beech, but they're a pretty large tree. They go up about 20 or 30 feet and then crown out in all directions. And they can get really quite big. They have a smooth gray bark, a lot like the skin of an elephant. They're absolutely exquisite. They have leaves that are more paper-like, a little less leathery than like an oak or a maple leaf. And so the light comes through the canopy differently than other places in the forest. And it's a little bit more like spending time beneath a stained glass window. That was where I gravitated to. And there was a large beech tree that I would take a book and a snack and 
I was the only one of my friends tall enough to get up into this thing. And it still took some work. But I'd climb up into this beech tree and I'd sit there and I'd read and I'd have my snack and I would watch the deer go about their activities below me and slowly just watch the world settle into its evening routine. And as the light disappeared, I'd climb down and hike back through the fields and go home. And so that was my childhood. And I got bigger and things changed. There was more development that encroached on those places that I loved and watching them be disturbed and watching them be destroyed was really hard on my heart. And I gravitated towards, you know, larger, more wild places. So going to state parks and going for trips out of state to other places to camp and to hike. And I went to a overnight camp as a young teen that introduced me to backpacking and the discovery that I could be out there going and I didn't need to come home was a game changer. So then fell in love with that immediately. I lived near the Appalachian Trail, so you could hop on that thing. It was like a highway and you could go wherever you wanted. So spent weekends and then weeks out on the AT or the long trail in Vermont and gradually was just gravitating towards larger and more wild places until eventually I felt really called to the West and I sold everything that would not fit in my pickup truck, lived out of my truck for several months, drove around the country, and I was actually heading for Oregon. That was my plan. I hit like 23 states and Canada in that trip, and uh, I fell in love with Missoula, Montana. I came through here. I had a buddy who was here. I stayed with him for like a couple of weeks, and Missoula to me felt like a place that had it at that time, which was a little while back, but it had enough culture to keep me happy and entertained. And it had such easy access to amazing wilderness and wild places. And so I just absolutely fell in love and decided to stay here. Joshua, eventually we will get into traditional skills, primitive skills, but I do want to take this moment to honor your mentors, because as you know, that's a huge part of that path. And so if you would be willing to share with us a little bit more about the evolution of you as a student of the primitive skills. Growing up, I was absolutely enthralled with indigenous lifeways. I was hungry for a deep relationship with the natural world. And so I gravitated towards native culture as an example of that. And I wanted to learn a lot of the skills that enabled native peoples to live in greater harmony with the world around them. Because I saw the destruction of the forest that I loved as a child and it broke my heart. And I could, I could see, you know, what the lawn chemicals were doing to the streams. And, and I was disgusted with the damage that we were capable of. And I really wanted to find a way to foster what felt to me like a more harmonious and sacred relationship with the natural world. And as a young person, I was trying my best to find mentors and find people that I could learn these skills from. And I struggled. It wasn't an easy thing at all. And I'm very grateful to my father for taking me out and introducing me to tracking in the winter woods. Not that he's any great tracker, but he at least took me on hikes and took my brother. And I think, honestly, my mother just wanted us the heck out of the house because we were two rambunctious boys and so he'd take us on these hikes and you know pointing out like oh and here are deer and here are raccoon and here's whatever and this and that and so it lit me up realizing that those tracks told a story 
And I wanted to learn to read those signs so that I could understand what was going on in the world around me. And I could understand what those signs and marks that were left on trees and on the ground and in the mud and in the snow told me about who lived there with me and what their behavior was and learning to interpret all of that. So that lit me up and I was devouring books on this and trying to find places to learn more. And I had a relative, my great-grandfather, who I never knew, Ray Zayner was his name. I think we were probably pretty kindred spirits. And so I got some of his woodworking tools and heard stories about him and his love for the outdoors and connection to nature and was inspired by his story as well growing up and wanted to find more people that had these skills and could impart them. And because I lived in the East, Tom Brown's Tracker School was really the only gig in town at that time. And so out here in the West, amongst the skills communities out here, often that Tracker School is kind of, they, you know, gets uh, made fun of a little bit or kind of busted on. But that was one of my first experiences with actually going to a school and learning those skills and learning friction fire and stone tool production and throwing sticks and all of that stuff. And I'd wanted to do that for years, but, you know, I could never squirrel away enough money to make it happen. And finally, I was able to and I went and the school was only about a half an hour away from my house this whole time. (laughs) And I remember being there and taking that class and hearing those stories after having read all the books and just realizing deep within me that something was going to change. This was, I felt absolutely called on a soul level to continue down this path and to learn more of these skills and to seek out teachers because it just resonated with me so completely. I took what I learned there and I brought it back to the school that I was teaching at and shared it with the students there and just kept practicing, you know, more and more and more dirt time. And I came west, and I found in the west, teachers were much more plentiful, much easier to access the skills and people with expertise in the skills out here. And my high tanning teacher, a fellow named Doug Christ, who goes by Digger, and he's well known in the skills community. So if anybody's ever been to a gathering, you definitely know who Digger is. And he is one of the absolute best high tanners probably in the country he's absolutely amazing. And I went to my first rabbit stick, which is a primitive skills gathering in Idaho in September. And the friend took me there and I was absolutely overwhelmed. It's like adult summer camp. (laughs) So you go and that you can learn anything you ever wanted to learn. And for somebody who was just hungry to learn everything, I wanted to do it all. And at the opening circle, they tell you to not do it all. They're like, come here, just come back pick a skill, finish a project, go home with a finished thing. Don't try to do a million things. You'll get overwhelmed. And I didn't listen to that at all. So I decided I was going to do all the things. So I wanted to tan hides. I wanted to make a bow. I wanted to do everything. Brief pause for the nut hatches here. Saying hello to us. I took Digger's class. I tanned two hides and made a bow in a week. I didn't talk to anybody, I just worked. (laughs) And then I went home and I reproduced everything I saw at that class, like the smoker box and the frames and all the tools and everything. And I tried tanning hides and I was not as successful as I was in the class because you have a professional teacher who's able to walk you through the steps and help you overcome mistakes and challenges. And so 
wasn't super successful, went back, took his class again, figured out what I'd done wrong, repeated this year after year after year after year, would go away, would just tan like crazy as much as I could, go back, take his class, ask him a million questions, write everything down. Eventually, I'm getting better and better at this, and I'm able to start co-teaching classes with him. And that's when you really learn, because now you're behind the scenes, you're seeing how he teaches things to students, you're working with other students to help them through their challenges along the way. And, you know, many years go by, and now I'm at a place where I've learned this skill sufficiently to be able to help other people with it and help them find success. And now I'm teaching at these gatherings, and there's a real sense of satisfaction in that. Today, The Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in the forests outside Missoula. We are sitting here with Joshua Lisbon. Joshua, this is a radio program, as you know, and... Part of my intention is to transport the listener here, audially. So if you don't mind taking a few moments to look around and painting the picture with words as to where you're sitting right now. We are sitting on a hillside of medium density conifer forest. Looks like mostly dug fir with some ponderosa. A lot of nine bark. We're seated in a sunny spot on some moss. And the snow from this winter is slowly receding around us, but it still feels like the land is very much in the grip of winter. Spring has not yet really come into bloom here in Montana, and I know we're all really awaiting that, or at least I am. Having been tracking all winter, I am very ready for some flowers. But uh, we hiked up here through some slushy concrete to get up to this beautiful ridge with a view. The wind is gently blowing through the trees, giving us a nice whooshing, hushing noise, and we've had some nuthatches around us singing their song, joyous in their work, and ravens go by, playful on the wind. Like you just said, Joshua, you have been tracking this winter, and so for those who just tuned in, we're speaking with Joshua Lisbon, and along with the other skill sets that I mentioned, he's also a mountain lion tracker, and he does film work at MPG Ranch, which is an ecological research station not too far from where we are now. Joshua started working at MPG Ranch in 2011, and he started to research mountain lions uh, in 2012. And that is a beautiful story. There is a film out, and another one is in the works. I just would love to talk to you a little bit about mountain lion tracking, your film work, MPG Ranch... All right, I'll give you the quick primer on MPG just to establish that as a place and then we can jump to cats. So yeah, I'm the education director for MPG Ranch. We are over 15,000 acres in the Bitterroot Valley on the Sapphire side, so the east side of the valley. And we get to steward that land. And so we are a privately owned conservation organization and our main goal is to establish best practices for large-scale habitat restoration and make all of that publicly available, whether that is writing papers, doing education outreach, uh, or film work. And I absolutely love it there. So I work with such a wonderful group of people, absolute experts in their fields of study. So that for me is a joy as a student of the natural world to be surrounded by people where if I have a question about pretty much anything, I can get an absolute incredible in-depth answer about like mycorrhizal fungi and how that works with soil systems and all of that. And so coming to the ranch, I think it was 2011, could have been 2012, but somewhere in there, I had a steep learning curve 
because my background is in education. So it makes sense for me to step in as an education director. I'd been doing a lot of outreach and education work, but I didn't have a strong background in conservation. And so I had to learn enough about the ranch and how it worked and what we did to be able to convey that to the public. And so I got to talk to everyone there and learn everything I could about what they do. And I've now been at the ranch for over 10 years. And in that time, I think I have learned more about the natural world and how it works and how that complicated, interconnected web of life operates than I could have learned anywhere else. It's been just a phenomenal education for me. And one of the things that really strikes me is Robin Kimmerer, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, talks about this. I don't know if it's in that book, but it probably is. Uh, it's certainly in some of the talks that she gives. And she draws a distinction between learning about nature and learning from nature. And I think that's a really important distinction. And I love that because I've had an opportunity, of course, to learn about nature. I have read all the books. I've read all the papers. I've talked to the researchers. So I've learned about nature. But I've also been in a really unique situation particularly with the mountain lion work, where I've had the opportunity to follow them on the land for a decade and see how they live their lives by observing them directly. And so it's this unique place where I get to learn from nature. I get to learn about cats from cats. And one of the most exciting things for me, particularly with like you know, studying mountain lions or any skill set, you know, if I'm working on hides or something and I hit some significant problem of like, why is this not working? Or my assumptions about something are proven wrong. I'm like always really grateful for those learning opportunities. And I found that with the cats pretty early on because we've only been studying mountain lions, like we, the collective we, since like the sixties. So not a long history of research. And early on, we didn't have access to a whole lot of technology. So now we have incredible ability to sample genetics out of hair and out of scat. And so that's how our project is established. We are non-invasive. We're not collaring cats. We're not handling cats. I like that because I like not being a source of stress for those cats. We get to leave them alone. They live their lives. We follow them around via their tracks. We pick up hair and scat. We run it through a genomics laboratory and we figure out our individuals that way. And so I've had this opportunity to learn from them over the years. And a lot of what I had read going into this project and had learned going into this project was turned on its head from what we were observing in the field and then what was starting to get published on by Mark Elbrock is probably the leading researcher on mountain lions in the country. And he had an amazing paper that came out in 2017 called Adaptive Social Strategies of a Solitary Carnivore. So if you like papers, it's a great read. He also wrote The Tracking Bible, which is like the mammal track and sign book that we all use. And we were observing individuals on kill sites. It looked like they were sharing resources. They weren't related we couldn't say if they were there at the same time, but like something's happening, seems really unique, doesn't make sense with anything I've ever read. Then he publishes that paper and the light bulb goes off and we're like, this is what's happening. It's actually happening this way. And then we were able over the years to directly observe it, to film it and record it in real time and see how those interactions played out. And so I love that, like I'd read everything. I had all these assumptions. I was proven wrong. We got new information and we learned, in fact, mountain lions are more social. 
have reciprocal relationships with cats that they have overlapping territories with, will share food resources with each other, and are really just overall a more complicated social animal than we ever gave them credit for. Are they solitary? Yes. Are they sneaky? Yes. Are they territorial? Yes, of course. But they also have these unique reciprocal relationships that they establish with their neighbors. And it's really cool that we can learn this and we can learn new things, right? We don't know everything. Nature is always more complicated and interesting if you really get into the minutia and take the time to learn from it. And so that's been one of the coolest things for me. And along the way too, I was given this opportunity to work with Colin Ruggiero, a local filmmaker. And we connected through the International Wildlife Film Festival in town here, which is awesome and is going to be happening in short order. So definitely check them out. And we had been following this mother who had a total Bambi story. She was orphaned and she survived and she goes into another cat's territory and she's tolerated and she survives that first year on her own and then goes on to have her first kitten and continues to have kittens and in fact turns into this like super badass mom who is an incredible hunter and is successfully raising young and then one winter we film her killing an elk and it's a 20 minute struggle in the dark freezing cold blowing snow and the elk walks into frame with her hanging off of its neck and there she is. And we were able to confirm that this is her through the genetics we got at the kill site. She wrestles this elk down for 20 minutes, getting thrashed, getting kicked. And as the daylight comes up, the cameras capture the fact that she has six kittens. And that's unheard of. Best as we can figure, she probably adopted some kittens. I think that one of her offspring from her previous year probably had her first litter and died and all the kittens were roughly the same age and this mom adopted I think about four because we only ever got two genetically connected to this mother and so she has this remarkable story and I talked to Colin about this he thinks it's exciting he wants to try to tell this story and I naively go into this thinking six months we'll have this dialed in no sweat right easy peasy I had no idea how much work wildlife documentary film work actually takes, Mm -hmm. particularly in the editing. The editing is unbelievable, but trying to get these shots in the field is ridiculous. These cats don't have collars. We don't know where they are. We have a team of incredible trackers all winter long, following these cats around, finding dens, finding kills, picking up hair and scat, and we're getting the genetics on them all. And so we're making this film. It takes us three and a half years to put this thing together. And we've put some really hard bumpers on this film too, because when we show you a cat and we tell you it's that cat, like if we're like, this is F2, this is Willow, she's doing da-da-da, this is her first offspring, F9, Sula, and she's doing whatever, whatever. It is that cat, and we've confirmed it with genetics. Whereas a lot of films, animals look pretty similar. And so you can film a bunch of sequences of a bunch of different animals doing different things, exhibiting different behaviors, and you can thread a narrative together Mm -hmm. and just trade animals in and out, and no one is wiser. And with mountain lions, that would be easy because they do look very similar. But we're not doing that. And so making sure that the cat that is on film is the right cat is a real pain in the butt. And and we put these incredible restrictions on this film as we're trying to tell this story. But that's what we did. And three and a half years later, we released Tracking Notes, The Secret World of Mountain Lions. And it tells the story 
not just of the cats, but of the other animals that share their world. And it has these interwoven storylines of foxes and elk and other animals that share this space with the mountain lions and how those paths constantly cross and intersect, sometimes beautifully, sometimes tragically, but it's all very real. Like we're not trying to pull punches and just show you like how nature can be beautiful and wonderful. It's also nature, some animals survive, some animals don't. Some stories are inspiring and some are very tragic. And I feel like too, we touch on the fact that it's really easy to pick sides. Like you see a majestic elk and you see an animal, like a cat take that down, you feel bad for the elk. But survival in that situation, the survival of the elk and the survival of the cat, they cross at that moment. And the survival of the cat depends on this interaction going one way. The survival of the elk depends on this interaction going another way. And that plays out daily in the forests. And some predators are not very successful hunters where they get injured and they starve and they die. And some elk get hunted and some elk get taken down by predators. And some elk also don't have enough resources to get through the winter and they starve and they die. And so there are very beautiful and very tragic stories playing out in the land around us all the time. And I think one of the things that really came home for me is that these are the same the same stories that play out in our own lives. And as much as we may think we are separated from these same types of rules in the world, we're not. We are animals in the world with our own stories that sometimes play out beautifully and sometimes play out tragically. And sometimes you survive and sometimes you don't and things happen. But I love being able to kind of weave all of that together in this story. And so it was a real wonderful opportunity to work with Colin on this. Joshua, this seems like a right moment to transition to talking a little bit about your connection with ceremony and how that weaves into your work with the cats. Yeah, absolutely. If I can share a quote, I wrote this down because I didn't want to mess it up and I wouldn't remember it. It's a block quote at the beginning of a chapter in a Derek Jensen book. Very intelligent man, very good author kind of depressing to read his works. So, you know, be forewarned. (laughs) I think this is a quote that for me really speaks to a lot of what I've been pursuing in ceremony and in traditional skills and what I hope to kind of help other people find there. Our goal should not be the emulation of the ancients and their ways, but to experience for ourselves the aspects of the human existence out of which arose those ancient forms, which when we see them, elicit such a feeling of longing. So for me, that means don't just borrow these forms from other cultures, from other places, to try to use them as a balm and a salve on your longing for connection. Instead, put in the time and the effort and the work to go out into the land, to learn from nature, pursue ceremony, discover the depths of yourself and your connection to your internal landscape, to the more than human community. Go pursue skills, learn to hunt because it's very real. There is nothing more powerful or emotional than taking the life of another animal 
to sustain your own life. There is no greater sacrifice that an animal could give than that. And yet, as powerful and upsetting as that can be, it's also a part of being human and it's a part of our human heritage. And learning to follow the tracks of predators and having surprise encounters that could go badly, it's all very real. And so I encourage people through pursuit of the primitive skills or ceremony or hunting or whatever it may be, discover for yourself those spaces within yourself, those places of connection to that outer world, be it the physical world or the more than human community. And through that, discover those same things that inspired those peoples that you may look to and think, I wish, I wish we could have that. I wish we could be connected in that way. Because I think you can. I think it's the birthright of all of us to be able to connect in that way. You just have to learn how to access it. And it takes time and it takes patience and frustration and a lot of work. We're sitting here with Joshua Lisbon. Joshua's love of traditional skills is all about deep nature connection and the pursuit of perfection of a craft. Joshua, I'd love to talk to you now about primitive skills. You and I could probably talk about this for hours, but you know, there's just so much to learn and it's so valuable to know how to make medicine from the land and to survive, not necessarily like you said about being some badass survival guy, but you know, if things turn south, you'd be better off than some because of the effort, the practice that you've put towards this knowledge. And now you're sharing it with other people, and I admire you for that. I thank you for that. I'd love to talk to you now about the Montana Folk School, high tanning and making solve out of Arnica, all the good stuff. Yeah. Where to start? Well, I have a high tanning problem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I had this opportunity once, like, I guess Digger was in town, and it was his birthday, so he came over, and... I also brew my own hard cider. So we were having some cider and talking about stuff. And I'd been working on an elk hide all day and it was getting dark and I'm out there by headlamp scraping this hide to, to get the hair and the dermal layer off. And Digger comes over and we both just kind of had this moment of like, God, of all the things, like why this one? Like it is such a pain in the ass and it, it's like exhausting and hard work. And, you know, we were just kind of grumbling about it because particularly elk, like it was a bull elk and elk necks are just really hard to grain. And the grain is, is taking off that hair and top dermal layer. So we had this moment of connection around like, why in the heck do we fall in love with this particular craft? But we did. And so very grateful to him for sharing his wisdom and knowledge over the years. And I love now that I get to do that as well. And so for those lucky or unfortunate few who decide that they want to tan a hide, I am more than happy to teach you how to tan a hide because I feel like it's alchemy. You're taking a hide off of an animal with blood and fat and hair and it smells like the animal. It's very real and you probably don't want to be anywhere near it. And you're going to transform that into this beautiful smoke smelling chamois cloth that you wanna make a pillow out of and snuggle every night. And it turns into this just absolutely beautiful fabric. And that transformation is an incredible amount of work. And it, it has taken me years of practicing this skill to get to the point where 
I tend to have success and I tend to have results that I can replicate and the hides turn out pretty well. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a lot because I've made a ton of mistakes and I've messed up a lot of hides. And then the question is always why, why didn't that work? What did I do wrong? What happened here? What happened there? And you just tease that stuff out until you figure out why it didn't work. And then as a teacher that helps you out because students will inevitably hit those same hurdles. And because I've screwed up so many hides over the years, now I can help students when they get to a point where they're like, oh no, this thing happened. And you're like, it's okay, we can fix it. We'll do this or that or whatever. And having tanned so many of them that you meet a lot of the places you can go wrong and then you can help other people. And so, of course, I love making friction fires and I love making stone tools and building shelters and making medicine from the land, like Arnica salve, which actually legitimately works. It's wonderful medicine. Or Cottonwood salve, also wonderful medicine, you know. I love all of that stuff, but I've really gone all in on wildlife tracking because of the mountain lion work and that just that sense of connection to that animal that I'm following. Like I've learned how to be a better hunter and to move through the forests more effectively in that role of predator because I follow cats around. And so I've learned a lot from them. And tanning hides has been an absolute journey. And so those two skills are the ones that I've really honed in on. I'm happy to teach a lot of different stuff, but those are the ones I love the most. And in Missoula, I think it's easy to find community around different pursuits. Like if you love yoga, there's a yoga community. If you love mountain biking or skiing or rock climbing, there's a community for that. There's people who will go birding or will hike to the tops of mountains or whatever it is. But for a long time, I've felt like there was a, a gap where there, there's no real focal point for a community to come together around learning traditional skills mm-hmm. or around that sort of deep nature connection. And so myself and my friend, Carrie Harper, she's a longtime teacher, a uh, long time in the skills community. We wanted to try to create that focal point to foster that community here in Missoula and provide an opportunity for this community and whoever wants to come in to learn these skills. And so clearly I work for MPG and I work a lot. So I don't have a ton of time to give to this right now, but it's something that I felt really passionate about starting as did Carrie. And so, we're starting small. We're going to just trickle out classes as we have time and as we are able. And we, we welcome instructors, anybody who wants to teach a class and has a skill. And so we founded Montana Folk School. So it's montanafolkschool.org if you want to check us out on the web. The idea of it being a folk school versus a primitive skills school or a traditional skills school or whatever was because it's a larger umbrella. And so you can fit like Scandinavian traditional cabin building or something under the same roof as tracking or friction fires or whatever. So you can bring in skills from many different cultures to share them. And the hope for me is to foster a community where deep nature connection is the focus of that and people can come together and we can share what we know and connect around keeping these traditions alive. Turns out there are not a lot of people out there who know how to do these things. And I guess I came to it from a desire for the empowerment that comes from knowing how to better provide for yourself. Like you can walk into the woods with a knife and you can find food and make shelter and create a fire. There's something very empowering about that. And if you 
end up in a pickle where some adventure goes sideways and you need to employ those skills, you will be better off as a result. But something I also learned along the way is that doing that by yourself is really hard and often a lot less fun than doing that in community. And so as a community, you can accomplish a lot more. You can get more done. You can build a shelter better, more easily. You can diversify these skills and somebody can make a fire. Somebody can make a shelter. Somebody can set a trap line. You can do all these different things and you have greater success. And so the idea of like that rugged individualist, sure, if you have to, but really I'd much rather do all these things in community. And so I've gotten to a point where I feel like I know enough and I feel confident enough in my abilities with these skills that I want to share them. And I was desperately hungry for this stuff growing up. I wanted access to exactly these skills. And so a lot of the work that I do for the ranch with creating internships for high school age students or starting this school with Carrie is to try to create some of those opportunities that I did not have access to when I wanted them when I was younger. And so I want to be able to give that to people who are now hungry for those same things. There's so many questions that I'd love to explore right now with you, Joshua, but let's just focus in on one plant in particular, one that maybe the equivalent of high tanning for you, that it is a plant that you think folks listening should know about. It's starting to get a little colder up here on the mountain. You might hear the wind blowing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my hands are getting a little chilly. Oh, one plant? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we just, on the way up here, you were talking about making portage. Oh, yeah, gosh, we're sitting right here. I mean, we're surrounded by a lot of different things, but we are surrounded by nine bark. There's tons of it. It grows all over the place out here. And I, well, in the winter, I curse nine bark a little bit <laughs> because it also tends to be in, like, open snow fields, and then there's, like, little caverns at the bottom, and when you step in, you go, like, all the way to the bottom, and trudging through nine bark is a pain, and I trip over it, and I fall over, and whatever. But during the green season, when I want to make cordage out of nine bark, I love it because it is absolutely everywhere, and you can harvest that outer bark off of the nine bark. You just bend the stem over a little bit, and it bows off, and you can pluck it off of there. And you can make it the same way you'd make most any cordage. It's called reverse wrap. It's the same way that hardware stores make rope. You just spin one group of threads in one direction and one group of threads in the opposite direction and you flip them over each other. And then when they try to untwist, they get caught because you've stored energy going two opposite ways. And so it stays together. And you make a round rope that way, which is really good if you need to make a bow that you have to knock an arrow onto for hunting or a bow for a bow drill kit. So it's super useful for a lot of that stuff. Really easy to make cordage and nine bark grows absolutely everywhere. But you can make cordage out of any number of plants that grow in Montana. That's just one that we are currently surrounded by. It's such a gift that the land will provide resources for you, medicines that can heal your hurts. And so in the spring, the Arnica will come up You can harvest the flowers. You can make a medicinal salve from those flowers that is good for sore joints, sore muscles. And it really works. Like, it actually works. And so I swear by that stuff. It's absolutely amazing. It's incredibly easy to make. When it's a good flower year, which last year was not the best flower year, but most years there's a lot of it and it's very easy to harvest. And so if you do go to harvest anything, I do recommend... Please don't take all of it. Distribute your impact 
so that you're not just going to decimate a given area so that there's more out there for everybody else. Or if it's a berry crop you're going after or a flower, if it's like a food resource for somebody else too, like the bears or whatever, don't just decimate an area, kind of spread out your impact. And then of course with Arnica, not to be ingested, do not eat your Arnica at all. It will absolutely destroy your digestive tract and would be really bad for you. But topically and not on broken skin, it's a really powerful medicine. And it just comes from the land. It is readily available every year and easy to make. What a gift. Today, the trail less traveled is being recorded in the forest outside Missoula, Montana. My guest's hand is shaking because it is getting cold up here. The wind is picking up. I think we're going to get snowed on. We are probably going to get snowed on. So we'll wrap it up and we'll head down the mountain. But before we end, Joshua, we'd love it if you could reflect a little bit about the importance of investing in the next generation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but children are the future. And I think it's really important that young people have a connection to the natural world. So my personal mission in much of what I do, the work at MPG and the work with the folk school, is to help foster that connection to the natural world. I get to do a lot of that with younger people, school groups, internships, whatever, at MPG. And I know we're growing up with an incredible amount of technology now, and it disconnects us from the natural world. It can also be an incredible tool. I lean on a genomics laboratory to learn about mountain lions, so it's fantastic in the service of learning about the natural world as well. But young people are going to be making choices that impact how forests are managed yeah, how we take care of the land around us. And so for me, I want to help foster a positive connection in young people so that when they are faced with a choice about even something small, about what to do with their backyard or something, that they'll make an informed and caring decision about how to take care of that land. I want to try to create more stewards, more people who are conscious about their place in the natural world and that they can have a positive impact. And so... Yeah, I do everything I can to try to foster that, particularly in young people, but even grown-up kids, too. <laughs> oh. Joshua, let's end your show with three bits of advice that you are willing to share with whoever's listening out there. Oh, man. Three bits of advice. <laughs> uh. Well, I'll lean on a quote from the philosopher Seneca, which is, luck is what happens when preparation and opportunity meet. So... I would say look for those places of convergence in your life because I am incredibly lucky by that definition because I get to do what I love. I get to do things for work that I am absolutely incredibly passionate about and I love every damn day because I'm lucky, because I fell in love with some obscure skills, tracking, hide tanning, and I love education. And because I doggedly pursued those things with no hope of ever being paid for them, I got really good at it. And when that opportunity presented itself, I happened to be in the room and I raised my hand. And even though I did not feel fully prepared, I was willing to learn more and I was willing to apply myself and work really hard. And so I would say, pursue the things that you love and look for those opportunities when they present themselves, jump on them, even if you don't feel ready and please spend a lot of time outside. 
Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's adventure radio series, dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. I'd like to thank my guest, Joshua Lisbon, a tracker, tanner, and teacher who works as the Director of Education at MPG Ranch and co-founder of the Montana Folk School. You can learn directly from Joshua and other amazing teachers by visiting montanafolkschool.org. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, check out the podcast. You can learn more about our global outreach programs, see pictures, and view the full show archive at traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this evening is a gentle reminder that some of the most able-bodied knives are small in stature. This goes to say you don't need a massive tool like the one Crocodile Dundee uses. That's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Please speak up for the wildlife and wild places you cherish. <laughs>